The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. If we have to experience an out-of-body or near-death event to cross over to the other side, what do dead people have to go through to make themselves visible to us? Welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you by IANS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. For as long as there's been written history, the appearance of ghosts and spirits from the other side have been recorded as real events that happen on a regular basis in our world. On a recent trip to Jerome, Arizona, for example, I stopped at the Grand Hotel, which once served as the hospital to a mining operation, and therefore was a place where many people had died. The desk clerk showed me the journal entries, written in their own hand by guests who saw or heard something ghostly. One recurring vision was of a ghost cat who walks through bedroom doors to visit travelers during their stay there overnight. Our guest today is Janice Goff, a friend of ours who has been on NDE Radio in the past. Janice is a gifted experiencer with a talent for photographing apparitions not usually seen by others. Janice, welcome back to NDE Radio. Good morning, Lee. Thank you. It's good to have you here. Uh, Janice, the last time I was in Rimrock, not just a few days ago, as a matter of fact, you were telling me some amazing stories about haunted hotels you've seen. And I thought we might start with the, the one in Jerome, uh, where I know your son worked, and, and then uh, we'll go to Amargosa. Okay. Um, the hotel in Jerome, yes, Matthew worked there, and he... He was younger back then, like 12, 13, 14, 15, in that age group. And he constantly told me stories about the cat that would come in and go from room to room, through the walls, through the doors. And he would follow him and never see him once he went into the rooms. But um, I went to pick him up one day, and <clears throat> the hotel sits high up on a hill with a little windy dirt road. And I turned the corner, and was coming up to the hotel, and there's this woman standing on these huge antebellum steps that's at the end of the hotel. She's in this emerald green um, dress with puffy sleeves, and I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, well, they must be having an event going on. Um, and as I got a look, she just disappeared. I mean, it just she just disappeared into thin air. It was, I, <laughs> I drove on up to the hotel kind of with my mouth open, thinking, oh, my God, you know, this woman with long, red, curly hair, and she was gorgeous, um, but that she just wasn't there, you know, so <laughs> there was no event. <laughs> <laughs> now, she, you said she looked very solid. Was this during the day or at night? Yes, she did look very solid. In, in fact, I thought they were having some sort of event going on, um, and this was in the daytime. In the daytime, wow. So I wonder what kind of, have you ever thought about what kind of energy it must require for uh, uh, for a ghost to appear like that? You know, uh, after taking all the photos that I've taken and explored through myself, how this can happen, <clears throat> I'm used to the information that I've gathered, how um, spirits, it doesn't matter what kind of body you live in. 
if you're in a dimension like a third dimension, we use third dimension um, uh, objects so that we can see each other. So you use a third dimension body so that I can see you. I use one so that you can see me. And if we didn't have a third dimension body, we would have to use the other attributes on Earth, such as the plants, um, smoke, glass reflections, all of those sort of things, so that we could see each other or we could see them either. Um, but in these cases where, you know, the the bodies are so solid and there is no reflection, there is no uh, physical attributes for them to kind of pull together to give me an image of who they are, uh, facial or body or whatever, I... I, I don't have a clue. I know that there's many technical, scientific things that, you know, the ghost hunters and all these people that do spiritual work have put together about this, but I don't study those things. I want that information to come through myself so that it comes through my own brain, through my own language. So far, Lee, I haven't gotten anything on how this actually happens that these, these, um, Spirits can be so solid, and um, <clears throat> I think in the past we've talked, I have a picture of my father that is solid in the photo. He's not an apparition, or you can see through him, and I've had contacts with other um, people who have died who are solid, um, but I haven't, you know, I have not gotten information of how this happens, I, I think it must be a tr- tremendous amount of caring, love, whatever it takes to get them into our dimension as a solid. Mm. Love, that, that's, I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I was thinking force or willpower, but I think you're right. It's probably, it's probably love that gives them the ability to materialize like that. Well, maybe maybe we could move on. Tell tell us uh, that whole story about Amargos. It's fascinating. Why you were out there in the first place and what you saw. <clears throat> oh my goodness, um, Amargosa Hotel was built in the twenties by the um, Borex Mining Company to house the workers, and there it's built in a horseshoe, well, a mm, kind of a U shape, square U shape. And then behind it, there is another row of cabins where they also housed. And this hotel also housed an infirmary, um, a hospital. I, from what I understand, they had places for altars, you know, and things like that for their um, church stuff going on. Um, I went out there and I was invited in, I think, Lee, it was either in 98 or 2001, and I can't remember the dates specifically. Um, I didn't have cameras back then, so I didn't take a camera with me. Um, Anyway, I was invited out there for a borough roundup. The BLM was shooting the boroughs that are non-indigenous to the area uh, from the helicopters, and I was invited to go out with a group to do a borough roundup and bring boroughs back to Arizona. Um, was out there two weeks, and basically what I didn't know 
was a lot. I didn't know anything about Death Valley, didn't know anything about Amargosa Hotel. I had only been in Arizona a short time, and that was all new information, new territory, new locale for me. So went out there and immediately the very first day seemed to walk into some sort of um, uh, interdimensional kind of thing where, you know, I just began to see shadows and images and people walking out of the side of my eyes, you know, how your peripheral vision. And I thought, oh, well, you know, um, the first night uh, I stayed in a cabin with the group that was behind the hotel, and we had pins behind that row of cabins for the burrows, and um, they had already brought in some burrows in. I was on watch that night because we have a lot of tourists that come, and, you know, they're there trying to see and mess with the burrows all the time. So I was on watch all night. I heard something outside and went out back to take a look, and there was a little girl leaning over the fence with her head through the fence looking at the burrows. She had on, <laughs> she had on this little white gown. I could see from the back she had a little bobsy haircut, little black hair. She looked like she was maybe 10, 11, 12 years old, just a real petite little thing. And I said, oh, no, come back. And she turned and looked at me and just faded away, just disappeared. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. Okay, so I came back inside and got went back to bed. Well, the next day, I was talking to Marta Beckett, who actually owns the Amargosa Hotel. And Marta, you know, I told her about the little girl, and she said, oh, well, you know, her mother drowned her when she was 12 years old in the cabin that you're staying in. <laughs> I'm like, okay. <laughs> Jeez, I mean, that sort of set the stage for a whole two weeks of um, just a massive onslaught. And it was a mental torque um, because you don't know what's real and what's not real because these things were so solid, you know, and it, and it was... It's in your brain, in your eyes, in your mind, and, and eventually goes into your heart. And it, um, it causes a real conflict to have to stay in that environment. Hmm. <clears throat> and what, what were some of the other things? Obviously, uh, the owner of the hotel was uh, well aware that these things were happening on a regular basis. Oh, yes. Marta is very aware that happened. She is... Um, very inspired, very, um, I think Marta is a portal herself, and her plays that she has done at the Opera House, you could quite often see all kind of things happening as she's doing her ballet. Um, oh, yes, tell, it, tell, us, tell us a little about the background of the owners and, and, and what they did to entertain the guests. Um, Marta was um, a ballet dancer. Um, her and her um, partner, Tom, they were actually from Hollywood, and she was traveling in Death Valley, ended up having a flat tire. 
and you know, thirty, fifty miles around, there's no place. So uh, to you, you know, there's no gas station. So she was wandering around there at Amargosa and stuck her head in one of the windows of this vacant building and saw this um, what's now called the Opera House. And she ended up purchasing that and restoring it. It was in massive um, destruction and had been flooded and all kind of stuff. She's painted the whole inside of the opera house and the hotel with all of her guests. And it's Renaissance paintings. It's very beautiful. She spent years doing that. The ceilings, the walls are all covered with her guests. And it, it's very beautiful. And it's very surreal. Um, and Marta now, she's, I think Marta's probably in her 90s now. And she completed her last um, ballet play. I think it was last year, actually, that she completed that last play. And um, another gal now is doing her play uh, as a as a memoir for Marta, and Marta's failing a little bit. She's having physical problems, so she doesn't quite often uh, come to the plays, but once in a while she'll stick her head in to sign autographs and things like this. But um, during that two weeks, I was able to visit with Marta quite a bit, <clears throat> and she had... Oh, my goodness, she must have had 300 cats there that she fed, and she constantly talked. She only had two cats in her house that were her favorite, her family cats, but she had many, many ghost cats that she also set bowls out for, (laughs) Mm. and she knew the history you know, of Amargosa quite well. So, you know, every time something happened, I ran to Marta's house and knock-knock, you know. Um, And one night, oh, gosh, I guess we'd been there three or four days, and we were all pretty exhausted by then. And that was real early on in our stay, but we were all working really, really hard. And um, all night long, we had knocked people, someone knocking on the the door of the cabin we were in, and needless to say, not one of us would get up and go open that door and see who was there. <laughs> <laughs> there had just been so many things happen that, you know, it was almost like in the middle of the night, you're in this dilapidated cabin, you just don't, you just don't want to know what's on the other side of that door, you know, so. <laughs> We just didn't. We just didn't go there. Barb Zog from uh, the uh, Hacienda de los Milagros, the animal sanctuary in Chino, stayed with me all day long, while the rest of the group went out to round up the burrows. So Barb and I just continuously uh, tried to keep our balance and. you know, tried to make do through this whole uh, scenario of of unusualness that neither one of us were prepared for. We were standing, um, there's a little dirt road running in front of the cabins, between the cabins and the the back of the hotel, and we were walking, I think we were might have been getting ready to go do the laundry or something, and um, 
walked out to the edge of the road to cross that little road. And, oh, we were going to see Marta's emus. That's what we were going to go do. And we looked, and there was four men running <laughs> down the road uh, coming our direction. And I, I said, oh, my God, Barb, back up. They're, you know, they're not going to stop. Back up. Watch mm. out. And as fast as I said that, it was whoosh, they went right through us. And it right was through just, you? Uh, yes. And just wow. left us standing there in a blur. Now, that's the closest I've ever come to feeling, actually feeling myself, um, that spiritual energy run through you from, you know, being in that close of contact. And I assume that that's probably what people experience who do medium work and probably experience that a lot. Um, but it's, it, it, it leaves you knowing that, in fact, pregnant women can feel that as well. You are carrying another spirit in your body. And there is a feeling that goes with that that you wouldn't get, but <laughs> it's very, very similar to what I experienced standing there when hmm. they flew through us. It was there was a leftover feeling of uh, knowing that I had another spirit inside of me, you know, mm. briefly at, at least. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh, Lee, in one, one late afternoon, um, and we're the only ones at the hotel, it, all of us for the Borough Roundup, and then, of course, Barb and I, during the day, we were the only two, two well, the only two other people. Um, Vicki worked the desk, and she was there every day. And then, of course, Marta was there, but Marta stayed in her home, and, you know, she had a life going on, so she was preparing for her plays every weekend and that sort of thing. So Barb and I went over to, uh, we walked through the hotel. Barb wanted to go take a shower and definitely didn't want to go by herself. So I went over with her, and I'm wandering around in the hall um, while Barb's in there taking a shower, and she's constantly hollering, hey, Janice, are you, you hey, hey, you know, and talking to me to make sure that I'm still there. <laughs> <laughs> so I walked out into the hall um, just because I was bored, and... There was a young man in the hall, and he was um, coming my direction. So I said, well, good morning. And he said, good morning. And he said, are you enjoying your stay here? I said, yes, we are. It's been very unusual. We're working hard. But yes, and, you know, and I, I would like to come back at some time. He said, yes, you will. And he turned and walked on and... um I immediately went to the desk and I said, Vicki, who's, I thought we were the only ones here. Um, I just met a young man in the hall and she said, with khaki pants and a black and red shirt, long blonde hair. And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And she said, well, that was Stephen. He died in Florida in the, in the late thirties. He worked here at the mine when it, after it was open in the twenties and he loved it here so much. 
that he continually comes back and tells our visitors that he hopes that they enjoy their stay here. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, okay, okay, this is, you know, it was just way a lot. There was no indication whatsoever I was looking through a non-solid person. And you, you know, rationally, Lee, you don't carry on conversations like that. Um, how are you doing? You know, what are you up to? Um, casual conversations with ghosts. Generally, we don't do that. You know, that's... What, was that, his voice strange or was it very normal? He totally, totally solid, totally normal. Walked off hmm. down the hall and I turned and went the other way. What did your friends say when she got out of the shower? I I asked Barb when she came out of the shower, when she went into the from the bathroom to the bedroom, because I had went back in there. I said, Barb, did did you see anybody in here? She said, No, no. Was somebody here? <laughs> I said, Well, not in here then. <laughs> and and I told her about him in the hall. And she said, well, let's go talk to Vicky." So that's when we went down to Vicky and got the rest of Stephen's story. Wow. Now, was your friend able to see uh, as much as you could? Um, she saw the men coming down the road, and we were both able to... Actually, I drew some pictures of them last um, sometime way back then um, from her description and totally matched my own. Um, one night, uh, early evening, she went to, it was just getting dark, and the only phone at that place, back then I didn't have a cell phone, she didn't either, so it was around the end of the building where there used to be a, um, ice cream shop. So we went around the, the, the end of the building, got her to the phone, and I came back into the courtyard area in the front, and sat on the porch. And as soon as I sat down, and I just sat down and looked up, and I'm like, oh, my God, we're going to a wedding. And I hollered immediately to Barb, Barb, hurry up. We're, you know, we're going to a wedding. <laughs> <laughs> well, what what did you see? <laughs> I saw the, the hotel doors were open. The, uh-huh. a huge double line, very long double line of men, and they were all kind of cleaned up and slicked down, and they were holding candles. And they were standing, you know, after each other, and at the head of this line was the bride, and she had on this long white dress with uh, this comb style of hat, um, Instead of a veil, it was like a cone sitting on her head with a fluffy stringer off the end of it. I, I know there's a name for that. It looked very, um, you know, kind of Renaissance sort of in my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, she came running around the building and stood there <laughs> with her mouth open. Um, and she said, what, what? And the whole image just sort of faded into the evening and we just kind of stood there 
you know, I'm still sitting on the on the porch, and she came and sat down, and we just sat there in silence for a while. There just had been so many things happen that we could not, um, we couldn't shift very quickly from one image, you know, to another. And then we had to go back to those cabins. And, um, of course, you know, out there in the middle of the desert, there are no lights. You're in total, total pitch dark. So everything that's illuminated in the night is illuminated by its own energy. And, you know, of course we had flashlights and things like that, but, you know, when you see something in the night, it's illuminated by its own energy. So you just, it just kind of, you know, you just, you don't sleep a lot. You work really hard. You don't sleep a lot. You try to take care of business. That's all left brain stuff. And in the meantime, you've got all this um, non-third dimensional right brain stuff that's going on. It it really caused, uh, it was a hard, it was a hard transition to make and a hard experience to to live through. We were totally exhausted when we left there. Mm. They, um... <laughs> Oh, there was something else I wanted to tell you. Let me think. Oh, well, I know our time goes so quickly on these calls, Lee. <laughs> it, it does. I wonder if the boroughs sensed anything special about the place. You know, they, um, because they live there, and mm-hmm. um, I never saw anything actually. The only thing I saw that gave me any indication that they were aware was there were two burrows <clears throat> at the fence when the little girl was there, and uh-huh. their heads were at the fence where she was. That's the only indication that I had, you know, oh, that, so they, may, that they were perhaps even they had, aware of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because if you could see her, then they probably could see her, too. That's what I assumed. And, you know, I, I think what really shocked me is that um, coming back to Arizona in the days and weeks later, um, I had told different people that I was going there and whatnot. I got some emails about Amargosa, and I'm totally shocked. I had no idea this place had been so heavily documented and so heavily um, researched for paranormal activity. You know, the, the, the voice recordings, the, the research and photographic documentation that's taken place there over the years, is, it's, you know, it was like a hot spot. And it's been featured on many, many, you know, the, the documentation well-known, National Geographic, history, on and on and on, very well-known channels that document paranormal. Janice, as you say, we have very little time left, and I wanted you to tell us a little about this Eagle Quetzal Condor gathering that you're going to be taking part in. uh, This is a very historical event. This will be going on through April 23rd. If uh, your listeners cannot be there, we definitely would would appreciate them remembering with good energy this whole gathering. 
um, because it's taking place for them as well. It's a global global convergence of wisdom keepers and planetary advocates. And to break that down, this means we've got 120-plus indigenous elders from North, Central, and South America that will be in Arizona. And uh, this group is working all over the world to reestablish harmonious relationships with the Earth for humanity to move into the future in a sustainable way. We have our elders and wisdom keepers from Peru, Guatemala, the the Kogi, um, Tibet, India, Bolivia, Africa, uh, the Aborigines, the Kogis. Uh, you know, they're all going to be represented there, and there's too many nations for me to, to rattle off and list. But just to know that this is taking place for you, for me, for every listener that um, you know that would listen to your your station and these these people all over the earth they've identified very specific things around the earth that's out of balance for each region and they have ceremony and, and prayers for that so here in the here in the southwest um, one of the issues that we're totally out of balance with is water and they see yes. that we are pumping water out of our aquifers faster than it can be replenished naturally. And they yes. see the earth as a gyro. So when you drain the earth of water on one side, it's going to throw the whole balance of earth off on the other side. So this is a bigger issue than just um, Arizona and all the southwest states using up water. This mm. is we're, this is global. This is sustainable future that we're talking about. Janice, uh, sadly, we're out of time for today. Uh, but I'd like to have you come back. Maybe you can take some notes uh, about this this uh, conference that's going to be going on, and uh, you can come back on and tell us tell us what was talked about and, and what the results were. Oh, that would uh, be awesome. Thank you. Okay. If anyone wants to get in touch with Janice, uh, feel free to email me at the NDE Radio website at TalkZone, and I will forward um, any emails to her. I want to thank our guest, Janice Goff, for her fascinating discussion. If you'd like to listen again to this or any of our past shows, just go to our website at nderadio.org. And for more information about the work of IANS, check out their website, iands.org. And tune in next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern, for more NDE Radio. This is Lee Whitting saying thanks for listening.